We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we are continuing on in the Gospel of John. We've got a couple more sermons in John. Um, and <laughs> I did not realize this until earlier in the week. So, you know, our custom here is we preach through a book of the Bible. Whatever passage comes next is what I'm going to preach on. And I did not sync up my calendars beforehand in, in, in detail to realize that on Mother's Day, I was going to be preaching about death. So, <laughs> it's not on purpose. I'm not making any big grand statement. It is just the next passage in line. Um, so, I did want to say that on the upfront in case any of the mothers in here were wondering, like, what is, what is going on? Um, anyway, <laughs> so this morning we are in John chapter 21, verses, uh, the end of verse 17 through verse 24. You can turn there in your Bibles, or if you need it, it's printed for you in your bulletin. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Jesus is speaking to Peter here. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among believers that the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. Oh, he only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that in it, even when we are perplexed, you show us who you are and you challenge our hearts and minds. So teach us, Lord, as we look into the treasures of your gospel, to love you all the more and to be renewed in you all the more and give us hope and confidence and grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's the elephant in every hospital room. It's the thing that haunts every family at one point or another. It's the thing that Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. Um, that we fear so much that that fear holds us in slavery. Um, it's death. It's death. It's not a great topic. Um, death is something that's real. It's real and it's inevitable. And there's a lot of examples in human history, or you can look around at our own culture, in our own world, where we try to avoid or lessen that reality. Um, death is real and it's inevitable. But some of us, you know, on the one hand, we'll try to avoid the topic as much as we can. Makes us very uncomfortable. Of course it does. Um, and so when it touches on us, we, you know, when it comes into our sphere of experience, we try to get through it as quickly as we can. Somebody around us passes away, and we might give ourselves permission to cry for five minutes or something, and then we've got to barrel through because we can't camp out there too long. Or we try to numb ourselves to it with addictions to alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever. Or on the other hand, there's folks that in the face of death, we 
we uh, try to rationalize it. We treat it like a natural thing. You may have said this, and you've definitely heard it said before. That's not a thing to be feared. It's as natural as being born. Just another transition in life. As if something happening makes it good or right. Um, but the idea there is like, you know, death, yeah, it's not really that bad. But neither of those things, avoiding or trying to redefine, um, makes death any less real or inevitable or comfortable. There's something that cries out within us when someone passes away that this is a wrong thing that has happened. This is wrong. It should not be like this. And I think that that thing crying out within us is, is right, actually. One of the things I love about Scripture and God you know, revealing himself through Scripture is how raw and real Scripture is. If you've ever actually sat down and engaged with Scripture and seriously, you'll find that out really quickly. It's not a, it's not a book of uh, quotations to make us feel good all the time. We can open Scripture and we find a very raw and real text to wrestle with. And Scripture does not treat death as a topic to be avoided. It does not treat it as a friend to be embraced. Scripture deals with the harsh reality of our world, the uncomfortable truth of death and the human experience. It tells us that death is real and it is a terrible thing. It tells us that death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. It is an enemy to be defeated and conquered. And... And this is the good news part of that, that it is an enemy whose ultimate power has been gutted in Jesus. And because of that, we can trust that death is not the end. Because of that, we can look at the tragedy of death in the face without trying to avoid it and without it striking terror in our hearts. Not because we think it's a natural and a good thing, but because death, as serious and as scary as it is, has to give way to the victory of Jesus. That's what we're talking about this morning as Jesus speaks to his disciple Peter about his future death. So we're going to break it up into a couple of different sections. The first one's this, Peter transformed. Peter transformed. Jesus is speaking to his disciple Peter here, and I need to say this, that of all the characters I meet in the New Testament, Peter's the one I understand the best, the one I most, I think, identify with. I get him. He's a guy that sometimes acts before or speaks before he thinks. He's ready to jump in with both feet and whatever's going on, so he, he just does it. Um, he's passionate. He's impulsive. You know, right before he's having this conversation with Jesus, he and the other disciples, they're fishing. I spoke about this a couple weeks ago. They realize it's Jesus on the shore, and Peter jumps out of the boat and swims the length of a football field to get to the shore leaving the rest of the disciples have to do the rowing, and they bring in the fish in the boat. But Peter's like, nope, there's Jesus. I'm jumping in. He's impulsive. He's passionate. And sometimes this looks like he is really, really committed to Jesus. Think back, um, you know, just a few weeks actually before this passage was the night Jesus was arrested. We talked about this on our, uh, our Good Friday service. Um, so Jesus and his disciples are kind of in this private garden. 
place and this dispatch of troops come to arrest Jesus and they arrive. And what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword and he's probably not a good swordsman because he swings it at one of the guys and he lops off his ear. Peter is mad that they are there to arrest Jesus. And so he pulls out his sword and he swings it. But what happens? Jesus rebukes him. He heals the man that Peter just harmed. And he tells Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who live with faith in, in, in violence will die in violence. It's where it leads. So like I said, he's passionate. And we, we discover there a, a Peter who is willing to kill for his beliefs, but who when he is rebuked, and when it appears that he's going to be arrested as well, is not willing to die for his beliefs. He's ready to kill for the cause but not lay his life down for it. So he fled, maybe angry that Jesus rebuked him, definitely fearful, because when we find him again, he's hiding behind a locked door trying to preserve his life, even if it means turning his back on Jesus and his friends. And again, I get it. I get it. He had shown what he thought was the ultimate commitment to his beliefs by drawing his sword. And it blew up in his face. And beyond that, they were there to arrest him and make no pretense about it. They weren't going to arrest Jesus or his disciples if they arrested them and just put them in jail overnight until it blew over. The arrest of Jesus was one that led to his crucifixion. And Peter knew that very well. That was the means of execution that the state gave to traitors. Crucifixion. And Peter stared at this reality that we're being arrested... It's not going to end well. I'm running. So that's what he did. I want to point all of that out. Because in this passage, Jesus is resurrected. He's raised from the dead. This is just weeks after Peter has fled from, with, you know, from the, the face of crucifixion in fear. And Jesus, victorious and resurrected, tells Peter that the very thing he's trying to avoid is what is in his future. Jesus is telling Peter here, you fled in the face of crucifixion. Well, I got bad news, Peter. <laughs> the future for you is crucifixion. And in fact, that's exactly what happened to Peter. About 30 years after this conversation with Jesus, Peter has lived his life for decades with this hanging over his head, but that's exactly what happens. Peter is executed by the Roman government as a treasonous uh, person who's trying to upend the government because um, they misunderstood what his preaching of Jesus really meant. Peter lived with this statement hanging over his head for three decades, 30 years. Jesus had told him where the path was going to go. When you're old, they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands, which was like that was a common saying to refer to crucifixion at that time. Three decades. I would have been looking around every corner, I think. <laughs> every room I went into, I'd be checking behind the door to see who was there, right? It made me think uh, this week when I was thinking about it, the movie Final Destination. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it came out in the year 2000. It's a terrible movie. Um, but the plot line is this group of folks that are supposed to be on this plane that crashes, 
that they had gotten off the plane before it crashed, but that the mysterious thing of death is mad at them for escaping, and so it chases after them. It's a terrible horror movie. I'm, don't watch it. Um, but in that movie, we see those characters fleeing in absolute terror. They're horrified because everything is a danger around them. But notice what happens here. Jesus tells Peter, the thing that scared you so much that you abandoned everything you loved and believed in just a few weeks ago is what is waiting for you down the road. Peter hears these words and he does not run. Jesus says them to his face and Peter does not run. Why? Because Peter has been transformed. The thing that terrified him most before he doesn't have to flee in terror. He doesn't have to look around every corner for the rest of his life. And not only that, not only does he not run, notice the thing that Peter does. His eye is turned, as soon as Jesus says this, to the well-being of another person. Not only does he not run, his eye is turned toward John, this young man, the youngest of the disciples, probably a teenager here, Peter's in his 30s. Lord, what will happen to him? It's not the question of someone who has just heard these words from Jesus and is saying, this is not fair. Isn't he going to get crucified too? That's the way I've heard this passage spoken about before, that this is Peter mad that Jesus has said this, and he's saying, well, what about this guy over here? Shouldn't he get crucified too? That's not what's happening at all. In the, pre the passage previous to this, Jesus had told Peter, Do you love me? And Peter had said, Yes, I love you. And Peter had or Jesus had told Peter, Then feed my lambs. Care for my sheep. Care for my people. And so right here, Peter is told by Jesus this terrible truth of how his pathway uh, in this broken world is going to end, how he's going to die. And Peter doesn't think of what's, what it means for himself. Peter thinks, Well, what does this mean for John? There's little indications throughout the Gospel of John that Peter and John in particular had a very close relationship. Kind of an older brother, little brother thing, or maybe adopted son type of thing. Um, but Peter's got this concern. If I'm going to die, what's going to happen to this kid that I love if I can't care for him anymore, if I can't protect him anymore? Peter's been transformed. He can hear about his future death without it destroying him in terror. He can be concerned about others because his heart has been changed. And what accounts for this change? What's happened here? It's not that he's become magically more courageous. It's not that Peter has spent the last few weeks in the gym really buffing up so next time he can swing the sword the right way. He hasn't found the courage inside of him. It's not he's finally found the ability to stoically face whatever comes. No, what's happened is in Jesus, his relationship with, to death has been fundamentally changed. Because if Jesus is raised, it means that death cannot be the end. Not just for Jesus, but for all who trust in God. Peter's understood when he's seen the resurrected Jesus in front of his face, that that ultimate power... That ultimate finality of death has been gutted. And so he doesn't have to live in terror because he's found a grace that's not only greater than his failure, he's found a grace that is greater than his fear. Peter's been transformed. 
And that brings me to my second uh, section here, the conquered enemy of death. So Jesus has told Peter all of these things, and I've mentioned that Peter's relationship to death has been changed in the resurrection of Jesus, and all that's true. But that does not mean that he's gone from seeing death as an enemy to seeing death as a friend. It doesn't. I have been to far too many funerals, um, far, far too many funerals, where the minister will say something like, we shouldn't mourn this, we should celebrate that this life, but they're happy. This isn't a sad occasion, this is actually a happy occasion. We should party because they're in heaven. Or we may mourn, but God is actually really glad that this has happened because now this person's in heaven, or something along those lines, as if death is a good thing. Maybe you've heard something like that too. Well, hear me clearly on the authority of God's word that is wrong. It is wrong. You've probably heard that and felt something in your heart go, oh, that doesn't feel right. Well, that thing in your heart was right. Death is not a friend to be welcomed, period. It is not. It is not something that God delights in. It is not something we should rejoice about in any way. Death is terrible. It is a thing to be hated and despised. Do not be resolved to it. That's not what God calls you to. It is not faith to accept death. That is denial. Hate death. You know who else hates death? God hates death. God hates death so much that he sent Jesus. That was God's answer and response to the reality and the terribleness, the horribleness of death. God said, this cannot stand. This wrong cannot be left alone. I'm going to destroy its power. What Cod calls us to is to stare the reality of death in the face and to see it for what it is, an enemy, and to see it for what it is in Jesus, a conquered enemy. Jesus speaks these words to Peter, but he doesn't say, Peter, I want you to really love and adore what I just told you. Peter's not meant to hear about his future here and think, this is great. I love this. Can't wait. But Peter does discover that it's something he does not need to be terrified of. Why? Because of what I've already mentioned. What happened, what just happened to Jesus. Jesus is the proof for Peter and for us that all who trust in God, death has to give way to resurrection. It's what God does. Death has to give way to resurrection. Death in all its power. Jesus has guaranteed to us that it cannot have the final word about us because it did not have the final word about him and by faith we are in him the resurrection of Jesus is the proof it's the guarantee that all who trust in God will not be put to shame that's not what God leads his people to but we will be vindicated all who live or die living by faith in God will find that death is not the end now apart from Jesus in a sense death is a uh, dead end street. Our paths lead to the grave, and there's only one door, the doorway in, and there's no coming out. It's grave, period, the end. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like he kicked another door wide open. 
that one doorway into death and no way out. It is like he kicked the door out. Death had been conquered, a conquered enemy. And that is why we can consider the reality and the inevitability of death without terror. Not because it's a friend, not because it is a good thing, because it is an enemy whose reign has been overthrown. An enemy who will be destroyed completely. That's the promise of Scripture. It has no power to hold us in its grasp. And that's not just true of us individually. I reference it all the time, but if you flip to the end of the book, what you see is the victorious Jesus making all things new. All things. And it's the assurance to us who come to him by faith that not only will death not conquer us individually, but all that is good that God works within us will never be lost. We should probably sing it this morning, but the song, Your Labor is Not in Vain. There's so many promises in Scripture. In the book of James, it speaks as it, it, that we will have a harvest of righteousness if we do not give up. It speaks about it in the book of Galatians, that we will see a harvest, we will reap a harvest of good it speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, which is an entire chapter about the resurrection of Jesus. The way that chapter ends is Paul reminding those people that because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the conquered enemy of death, that our labor, the good that we do and attend to in this life, is not in vain. It's not. We will receive a harvest of love and flourishing. Now, when the topic of death comes up, the inevitable question follows. What about those who die and have never placed their faith in Jesus? What about those who die who never placed their faith in Jesus? What about my uncle or my friend or my spouse? Well, there are a couple things, uh, two things in particular. Number one, we, Scripture tells us that God will do what is right. God will do what is right. It does tell us of those who persist in rebellion, specifically people who persist in rejecting God, specifically and who persist in hurting others. God gives them what they want, separation from Him. And that's what hell is. It's not pitchforks and little devils poking people for eternity. That's not what hell is. It's separation from the God who is life and love. It is judgment without mercy. But Scripture doesn't just tell us that. It doesn't just end there. Scripture also tells us that God is who He has shown Himself to be in Jesus. Do we want to know what God is like? We look to Jesus, first and foremost. And God in Jesus shows Him as someone who uh, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Shows Himself as a God who chases after His enemies to bring them into His kingdom as adopted children. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then, then everything is on the table. Jesus shows us that God is willing to chase after us and to give us grace. And who are we to say that God doesn't do exactly the same thing in the last moments of a person's life? That He doesn't do that in ways that we do not know and cannot comprehend. So hell is real. Don't hear me say that it's not. And those who persist in harming others and rejecting God, will receive what they want. But in the face of our rejection, in the face of reality of death in this world, what did God do? He sent Jesus. 
who chases us in his grace. And that is our hope because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And so we can look forward in hope because God is not one who delights in the perishing of anyone, as Scripture tells us, and he is the God who is at work to make all things new. And that brings me to my last section, the different paths of following Jesus. There's a story from Christian tradition, probably like 150 years after the death of Peter, that when Peter was crucified, when the, the soldiers took him to the hillside where his cross was, that Peter said, don't crucify me like my Lord was crucified. I'm not worthy to be crucified like that. Turn me upside down. And this tradition developed that Peter had been crucified upside down. And it was like this last act of submission to God. I'm not worthy to die like he did, so turn me upside down. And, and maybe you've heard that before. Um, and uh, we don't know if that's exactly true. Um, we don't have any indication of that actually happening in Scripture. We know that he was crucified, um, but we don't know the details. But that story has a lot of oomph to it. We hear it and we think, yeah, that's great. Um, almost like Peter's a kind of, and I'm not saying it didn't happen. We just can't really know with assurance. But we tend to tell that story like Peter is this kind of superhero of faith. Like um, he had this kind of strength of faith that's unavailable to us. Like, man, look at this guy. That's a hero of the faith. But before we think of Peter as some kind of superhero, unimaginable to us, know that the same Holy Spirit that enabled Peter to live his life with boldness, that empowered him to find strength when he was weak and encouragement when he was distressed, that same Holy Spirit is given to us too. One of my uh, seminary professors, my Christian history professor, in fact, the very first day of class I walked in, and this is the first thing he said in a very loud voice. It was actually kind of scary because I was expecting, like, all right, pull out your syllabus. We'll walk that. No, he said, no Christian heroes. The first thing he said before we started, uh, uh, yeah, no Christian heroes. And what he meant is if we look through the, the religion of Christianity trying to find these moral perfect heroes, we will come up wanting we all have, you know, the warts of weakness and failure, including Peter. We are not supposed to read these stories and think, man, look at that superhero. I wish I could be like Peter. Not at all. Friends, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made spiritually alive. We are united by faith to Jesus. And we receive our spiritual life and power from Him. And we are empowered to be His witnesses in this world just like Peter, just like Peter. And if Peter was in this room right now and he caught an inkling of us going, man, look at that superhero, Peter, he'd probably toss every table over in this room. That's not the point, never the point. Guys, I feel so weak sometimes, and I don't just mean physically. I do mean physically because it... You know, I'm 39, and my love for naps has grown exponentially as I've gotten older. You can ask my mom. I never napped as a kid. Hated naps. Now it's like, you know, I set my calendar by that. But I don't just mean uh, physically. I mean spiritually. I 
feel profoundly weak um, often. And you probably do too. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that I'm being transformed, being made new. But the same transformation that, transformation that made Peter new, that enabled him to hear these words and not flee, and not only not flee, but look to the good of others. And not only that, but to march into the next 30 years of his life, dedicating his life to God and to loving others well. That same transformation is mine and it's yours. It's what we're called to walk in in confidence, knowing that the new creation that God's working is not something that we manufacture or make happen. It is something that He is at work. He is the gardener that is growing us. Now, being empowered by the Holy Spirit like Peter doesn't mean that our pathway will look the same as His. You're probably not going to be asked to be crucified in the city of Rome or even have the chance to say, do it upside down because I'm not worthy. That's not, I can almost guarantee that is not in your future. It wasn't in John's future. You may have noticed they're talking about the different pathways that they wind up taking from here. Peter asked about John, and the calling for John and for Peter to follow Jesus wound up taking them very different places, very different routes. Now, some of it looked very similar. They were both authors of Scripture. They were both preachers. They were both people who went out and planted churches. But their lives wound up looking a lot different. Think about it. For instance, Peter was married. We know about that. Peter was a married man. We don't know if he had any children. They're never mentioned. So he was married. But John, there's no evidence he ever married or had anything close to a traditional family. In fact, if anything, uh, what we do know is John cared for Jesus' mom, Mary, in her old age. He was the person entrusted with that, but we don't have any evidence that he ever married or had kids. They seem to have very different personalities. Peter's ministry seems to have included a lot more traveling around than John's. They were both arrested a number of times, but their deaths looked a lot different. Peter was crucified as a a treasonous criminal by Rome. But John died of old age. John was exiled at one point. John was tortured at one point. But he died of very old age, the last of the disciples to die. But I want to point out all those differences because right here in this passage, Jesus could have had the chance to say, well, the real pathway of following me is Peter. He could have said that here, but he does not belittle either of their paths. Notice that. There's no making one of them look more holy or better than the other. They each had to follow Jesus wherever that path led, and empowered by his Holy Spirit, they did. They were each carried along by his grace. Now, I say that because I do not know what your pathway of following Jesus in this world is going to look like. I don't know where it will take you. Um... It may mean being embedded in the community that you are in right now for the rest of your life. And that's great. It may mean following the call to go across to the other side of the world to help plant churches or translate the Bible or build hospitals or those kinds of things. It might look like that, and that would be great too. But neither one of those is necessarily better 
than the other. God gives us our callings. He gives us our gifts. They look a lot different than one another. And that's okay. My calling as a pastor doesn't make me more important, more holy in this church, or better than anybody else. Period. It's just what my calling is. So I don't know what your pathway of following Jesus in this world is going to look like. I do know that it will mean sacrifices. It will mean sacrifices of time. It will mean sacrifices of money. It may mean sacrifices of reputation. It may mean sacrifices of career opportunities or wealth that could be yours if you just cut corners, mistreat or forget this kind of person. Then I can get ahead. It will mean that. It will mean living a life subsumed under the lordship of Jesus wherever he puts you. It will mean becoming the servant of all, following Jesus to be the kind of person that will wash other people's feet figuratively and literally. It will mean dying to yourself and your selfish desires and watching a new you come to life as God grows you by His grace. It will mean you being transformed like Peter with an eye toward others. And it will mean dying. I'm sorry in advance. I'm sorry. Death stinks. It's terrible. It's the worst thing. Most likely, again, not being crucified upside down or right side up. Most likely nothing close to that. But unless Jesus returns to make all things new in your lifetime, you will die. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe a hundred years from now. But your life here, in this world as it is, will not last forever. But here's the good news. You don't have to deny this and avoid it. You don't have to pretend it's not real. You don't have to pretend like death is a good thing or a friend to be embraced. No, you can stare at this conquered enemy in the face and find, like Peter, a grace stronger than your fears. You can entrust yourself to Jesus who will not leave you hanging and will not let you go. You can live lives that rage against death. And I don't just mean your own. Lives that are committed to life and flourishing and thriving for others. So death, hate it, despise it, rage against it, but do not live in terror of it. It has to give way to the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you don't pull punches. Um, You don't delight in making us feel bad or anything like that. But in the reality of our world, you don't give us cold or false comfort. No, what you do is you see the things that hold us bound. You see the enemies of our hearts. And you and Jesus come to break them of their power so that we might come to you and find our sins forgiven, that we might come to you and find the finality of death gutted, that we might come to you and find a hope that is not based in our feelings, but a hope that is based in your character and what you do and what you're up to. So, as we live our lives in this world, empower us by your Holy Spirit 
to be people that do not live as slaves to fear of death, who rage against the reality of death as a conquered enemy, and who look to you as our source of life, our source of spiritual nourishment, encouragement, and power. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.